Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the Donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Well, good morning, Portico. Welcome. Good to have you here. Welcome those of you online. Welcome to all of our campuses. We are on a full campus lockdown today. Everybody is in, and it's so good to have you here. Hey, that video, if you don't know the background, that was Martin Luther, a portrayal of Martin Luther. Remarkable. In the end of the 15th into the 16th century, he was an Augustinian monk who was fed up with the bureaucracy and the hypocrisy of the church. And he just said, I can't do this anymore. He was watching them peddle penances and everything was about money and power and prestige. And he goes, that's not what the church is about. So in a summary, he goes up against it. One man goes up against the entire institution. And he goes, we got to get right back to the basics here. It has got to be the Scripture is the sole authority, not the tradition of men. And it has got to be salvation is by faith. It can't be by works. You can't be charging people money and getting rich off the backs of the poor. Let's get the church back to it where it needs to be. And he did. He sparked an incredible reformation, which would forever change church history. And we are the results of that one man's bold declaration. Friends, that's the power of one. One. Can you imagine the collective power of everyone listening to my voice today if we were gripped with the same tenacity and conviction that the Spirit of God within us can give us the same empowerment to see change, mission, and vision unleashed the way that Christ wants it? It would be absolutely remarkable, wouldn't it? It would be absolutely remarkable, wouldn't it? Okay, just checking. It's interactive church time. So if you're joining us today for the first time and you're visiting, welcome to Portico. Great to have you here. We're in a series. It's called Thrive. We've been looking at how do we thrive in 2018, looking at emotions and spirits and finances and all that. We're rolling it out. You can go to our app and go to our website. But today we want to talk about the church. Now, some of you, I did not forget about the offering because I saw you. You were like, whoa, whoa, where's the ushers? We always give it this time in the service. You're just, you're ready for us to ring the bell and put it in. Wait, we're going to get to that. Today is the power of everyone day, and I'm going to set that up. We're going to talk about that. And if you're a guest, I'll explain that as well. But I want you to get your Bibles out and go to Acts chapter 2, get your apps out, and there's notes in the bulletin today so that you can follow, follow along. And what I do want us to do is dream for a moment, what would it look like if the church could unleash the power of the collective community, even just us here in Portico. And if we were on mission together, radically sold out with the conviction that God wants to use us to build His church, what could happen? If He took the intellectual capital, the emotional capital, the fiscal capital, if He took it all and we just yielded to Christ and we said, for the purpose of your church, what could this look like? And if we were to dare to imagine or dare to dream, I think it would be truly remarkable to get a picture of what might take place. Now, thankfully, the Bible gives us a little bit of a picture of what happens when people believe that they can align around a common cause and align themselves around Christ. And that's where Acts chapter 2 
comes into play. And so we're going to take a few notes this morning and walk this out. Now, here's what I want to do. Many of you have been around the church. How, anybody ever heard a message out of Acts chapter 2? Yeah, okay, there you go. So a lot of you go, we know where this is going to go. We'll fill in the blanks right now. We're ready to go. We're going to doze off, come back, and uh, wrap it all up. Give us the last song. Doug will be there. Hey, don't check out yet, because I'm going to come at this from a different angle. While the points are going to be familiar to many of us, they come right out of this section 42 to 47, I want to come from a slightly different angle so we can look at this and go, what would happen if the power of everyone were really to be released in this moment? So let me read it, beginning at verse 41, and then let's break it down together. So Peter, just context, Peter's preaching, it's the day of Pentecost, baptism of the Holy Spirit, people have been filled with Spirit, they're speaking in other languages and people hear them talking and they think they're drunk and some are just absolutely mesmerized by what's taking place. And they're asking Peter, what's this all about? And Peter gets up and speaks. And at the end of him speaking to the crowd, we read these words in verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And then they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is absolutely the perfect picture of what the church looks like when it's thriving. Now, Often we jump into verse 42 to start the study, and we go, well, they devoted themselves, and we look at the core attributes that are part of what a thriving church could be. But I actually want to back you up to verse 41, because it's right there, I think, that gives us a little bit of the insight into the thriving nature of a church. Because Peter's speaking, the people are all confused. They're going like, we don't understand this. Like, life has been upside, remember, life's been upside down. They've crucified Jesus. Some are saying he's resurrected. He appears for 40 days. He ascends into heaven. Now for 10 days, they've been waiting together, meeting together. He said, don't leave until you receive the promise of the Father, the Holy Spirit. 10 days later, the Holy Spirit's poured out. That's 50 days. Now we know it's the day of Pentecost. And there's this like radical upheaval that's taking place in the city of Jerusalem. And people are going, what is this all about? And when this happens, they're asking Peter, explain, how can all of us from all these different nations of the world, how can we gather together and understand the, the glorification of God? You're talking about the miracles of God. How can we understand that in our own languages? You don't know our language. So Peter begins to speak to them, and he goes, well, let me tell you about the prophetic implications and what God said was going to happen. And Joel said this was the day that was going to come, that God would pour His Spirit out on all people, and they'd begin to speak in other languages like this. This is what you're witnessing. These men are not drunk as you think. These men and women are simply yielded to the Holy Spirit. So he's speaking to them, and then he shifts out of explaining the supernatural experience into, oh, hey, by the way, this is all part of what Jesus said he was going to do. And hey, by the way, you betrayed Jesus, and he was nailed to the cross, and he was crucified, and he was murdered. You killed him. And by the way, he died, and he was buried in a grave, and then God raised him back to life again. And so Luke tells us that the people were cut to the heart. They're going like, ah. Oh. We did that. So what do we do? And Peter goes, repent and be baptized and be saved. And then Luke adds this little disclaimer. He goes, and 3,000 people are added to the church. Now, we've read that, right? Does that seem remarkable to you? It blows my mind. I've got to be honest with you. But we read the number and we go, oh, well, moving on. 
and we don't capture the essence of what 3,000... This weekend, in the collective campuses that are coming together, we number just less than 3,000 people. So put this into context. Peter preaches, and all of us at all of our campuses in one moment go, I want to say yes to Jesus for the first time. We wouldn't be prepared for that. Well, I know you wouldn't. We'd be doubling the room right now, and you'd be going, no, you're not sitting in my chair. Like adding that many people in one context. And when I think about the staggering implications, you go, what's so profound? Remember, the church was birthed in the midst of a crisis. The, the church wasn't birthed as a popular movement. One of the twelve had betrayed the leader, and the leader was eventually handed over to be crucified and murdered. The other eleven from the band of brothers, they abandoned their leader. They deserted him because they didn't want to get caught up in the fray, and they watched everything from a distance, and they watched the horrific events of him being crucified and then buried, and then were bewildered themselves at the sound of him being raised back to life. And then when all the dust settles from all the ruckus, because Let's be honest, that was quite a weekend. When all the dust settles and Jesus hangs around for 40 days, he goes on a sabbatical. He goes like, okay, I'm out of here. And he ascends into heaven. That's my language, the sabbatical, but he ascends into heaven. He goes, you've got this. The church is in your hands. They were ill-prepared, had no idea what God was about to do, had no idea what the Holy Spirit was going to do. So all they were doing is meeting together like Jesus said, and when they were all together and they get filled with the Spirit, and then suddenly this crowd emerges, their boards and budgets and buildings couldn't handle what God did in one day. Their staffing structures were stressed out, their leadership strategies were demolished. Any human effort could not contain what God can do in a moment when He decides to move. Friends, when you think about that, God can do in your life in a moment what you could never strategize for your entire lifetime. That's the power of a church when it really begins to thrive. So here they are in the midst of a crisis, and God does His best work. Let me stop for a moment. A crisis did not define the church. It refined the church. And it's the same in our lives. A crisis does not have to define you. It can refine you. It can be the very moment where you truly begin to understand, I can thrive in the middle of the most challenged circumstances because I know who God is and what God is doing in me. And talk about explosive growth. So I took the numbers. I thought, well, let's be conservative. 120 in the upper room. Let's just do a multiplication factor. That was 2,400% increase that day. How are your RSPs doing? Yeah. So I just think like the TSE and the Dow Jones and the NASDAQ, this would just like kind of blow everybody's mind and all the analysts trying to figure it out. What do we do with this growth? You have to ask yourself a question. What would we do, Portico, if in one day we literally doubled ourselves? How would we handle that? What would you do if your family doubled itself tomorrow? Run. That's one of the ways to handle that. So I looked at this in a different way and I went, okay, so what did the church do that enabled it to thrive? Because they repented, they were baptized, and they began to follow Jesus. There were some core discernible attributes that took place. Write them down in your notes. They're right there in the scriptures, and here they are. The first one is this. It's teaching. In Acts 2.42, we read these words, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Interesting, there's a little definitive word added there. It's apostles' teaching. 
So what is that? Why did Luke intend to add that in there? Luke was very intentional. He never wasted words, and he always ensured that he used words that would explain the essence of what he wanted people to know. He could have said they devoted themselves to the teaching and moved right along, but he said no to the apostles' teaching. You ever wonder why? Because the apostles were called apostles because they were eyewitnesses of the life and the events of Jesus. They had seen, they had heard, they had witnessed, they had experienced everything that Jesus had done. When people would say, hey, that miracle, no, I was right there. I saw it happen with my own two eyes. I couldn't believe it myself. Well, what about the blind man? No, I was right there. I saw that one too. Well, what about the feeding of the five? I I actually participated in the feeding of the 5,000. So these were the ones, apostles or the eyewitnesses, who were able to verify and authenticate the very life and the teaching of Jesus. And so Luke says, what made the church thrive is that they were connected to the apostles' teaching, and the apostles' teaching was all focused on who? Christ. It was Christ-centered teaching. So it's interesting, even in our life journals this week, for those of you that maybe you're not familiar at the church, we use a little guide. We encourage people to read every day a little bit of the Scripture, and it's called our life journals. And in our life journal allocations for the readings this week, Jesus talks about teaching of the parables. And when he taught the parables, the disciples came to him and said, Lord, we don't understand. And he goes, that's okay. Then he would take them off to the side, and the Bible says that he would explain to them what the parables meant. So here's what's happening. The disciples who become the apostles, the name is interchangeable, they are getting first-hand information from Jesus, not only in what he's doing and what his mission is, but when he teaches, he's explaining his teaching so that they have it because Jesus was depositing in them what they were going to need to use when the church would explode in growth. So the church was built on Christ-centered teaching. Friend, don't miss this. There's a lot of teaching today. You can go on YouTube, you can download different apps, you can follow different video streams, you get every kind of idea and philosophy that's out there, but if it does not distill down to being Christ-centered, then just toss it, because the only thing that's going to give you a life that is thriving is one that is anchored in Christ and Christ alone. In fact, Jesus was so intentional in his use of the Word, he always referred to the Word. What was the Word for Jesus? He often go back to the Torah the Old Testament, as we would call it. And he would quote passages and teach out of the Old Testament, but it would always be for the purpose of showing who he was. If you're taking notes, I want you to write a verse down. It's not there in your notes today. Luke chapter 24, verses 44 and 45, Luke records these words of Jesus. So Jesus said to them, these are to his apostles, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Now that's really interesting. He goes, I told you everything in the law of Moses. I told you everything that was in the prophets and everything in the Psalms, that they would reveal me. They would point to me. Now sometimes... We love to go back and read for historical purposes and we get caught up and we get into series and teaching and we can dive really, really deep into principles and learn a lot of really good things. No problem. But the purpose of the scriptures of the Old Testament or the Torah was not to be contained as a new element of codified teaching. In other words, they weren't to be a system of structures and rules to be followed. They were revealing the Messiah to come. 
So when the Ten Commandments were given, they weren't to be codified that you would observe the Ten Commandments, never break the Ten Commandments, and if you broke the Ten Commandments, you pay your penalty and you start all over again. The Ten Commandments, nobody, Jesus even said this, you can never keep the Ten Commandments. And if you try to keep them and you keep one and you break one, you're guilty of breaking them all anyhow. The Ten Commandments were simply to show us that we are humanly incapable of keeping the commandments. Has anybody else ever experienced this? Or are you guys better than me? Have you kept all Ten Commandments? Okay, good. I just want to make sure I'm preaching to the right crowd here. So what we do, though, is we hold up rules and codifications and commandments, and we go, did you keep all of these things? And Jesus goes, no, 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 you're missing the point. All that was in there, all of that would lead towards the sacrifices, and the sacrifices would pay the penalties for the sins because you sinned because you couldn't keep the commandments. And all of that wasn't to put you under guilt and condemnation. It was to point towards Christ who was coming because Christ was going to set you free. And apostolic preaching was on Jesus. Jesus is the Christ-centered teaching. Everything we teach on should point back to Christ. Everything we do, every growth group we have, every teaching moment we get together, it should always boil down because it's Christ in Christ alone that enables our lives to thrive. Would you agree? All right. So we know that this is what made this church thrive. They went back and they focused on Christ. Number two, here's the second thing it says, they committed themselves, this is a discernible attribute, to fellowship. Now we all know what fellowship is, don't we? You do, right? It's food. Right? That's the church. When we talk about, how many of you remember that? We're going to get together for fellowship and you fully expect food to be a part of that. That's code. If you're, if you're not used to church language, we have a lot of inside language around the church. So we get together and we say, let's get together. We'll use things like brothers and sisters and all that stuff. And we'll say, let's get together and have a little fellowship. That means let's do a potluck. Everybody bring a little food. We'll get together, hang out a little bit, and it's going to be a great time. Let's go to a small group and we'll fellowship together. If there's no food at that small group, I'm not fellowshipping with you. You ever notice that? <laughs> so we've connected food to fellowship, but we've actually stripped the essence of what the word means out. Because fellowship is a word that in the original language cannot be translated into a single English word. It is a complex word that at the very essence of it refers to this unique relationship that comes when you give your life to Christ. Remember now, these are 3,000 who repented of their sins. They were baptized. The Spirit of God was placed within them, and they realized that now they belong to God's family because the Spirit of Christ has made them new. And fellowship with them wasn't about food, and it wasn't about getting together. Fellowship with them was the Spirit of God is in you, the Spirit of God is in me, and now we belong to this incredible community. There is no other organization on earth like the church. Nothing. Because the Spirit of God is what makes us new. And when we become followers of Jesus Christ, not only are our sins forgiven for which we go, yay, but He said, no, no, my Spirit is in you. That means when I look at you and you look at me and we're followers of Christ, we're not just who we are as God created us. His Spirit is at the core of who we are. That means our conversations are sealed and connected in the vibrancy of the Spirit. And we're able to pray together and discern things together and talk about spiritual things and build and encourage one another up and then have food. That's okay because food fits in there eventually. But fellowship is such a rich and important part. It's not like a Costco membership card. You know that. Because sometimes we think fellowship and being along into the church is like a Costco card. As long as you're a member, you can go in. Nobody else gets to go in without the card. You can invite a friend occasionally as long as they're with you. 
And then they got to get their own card. And some people see the church that way. You guys are card holders, aren't you? You don't know. We're not card holders. We're spirit bearers. The Spirit of God is within us. And they committed themselves to the fellowship. That means that they recognized that God had done something unique and powerful within them that they could not dismiss. And friend, if you struggle in your Christian journey, here's what I want you to catch. Christ has put His Spirit in you. You can never get away from Him. So even when you kick your family out, you can never get away from Him. That's why the psalmist said, where can I go from your Spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I go to the far side of the sea, you're there. No matter where I go, and that should be really powerfully comforting news for us. So that means we have the Spirit. We're connected together. We have this powerful fellowship. In your notes, I want you to look at a verse. We won't put it on the screen, just in your notes. 1 John 1.3. This is John writing to the believers. And look what John says in verse 3. He said, we proclaim to you. Now what does he say? What we have seen and... Okay, stop there. John says, we're proclaiming to you. Who is that? The apostles. We are proclaiming to you what we have seen and what we have heard. What is that? That's apostolic or apostles' teaching. So he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen, what we have heard. So you guys, you can trust us because we're eyewitnesses. So that you may have fellowship with us. So John didn't say, we slaughtered a lamb, we ordered some shawarma, so come on over and let's have fellowship. He goes, no, no, no. We have proclaimed to you what we have seen and what we have heard so that you may have fellowship with us. Fellowship is the outflow of a connection to the teaching of Christ in relationship with others. It's when we are intricately connected. And John goes on to say this, and our fellowship, so now we're together in fellowship. He goes, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. You don't just belong to the church. You are the church. You are the church. That means even if you're not physically present in the room, and some of you are watching online right now, and some are at other campuses, and sometimes we choose to stay home, you go, well, I'm not going to go to church today. You can't not go to yourself. You understand that? You're the church. So if you didn't go it was a dismal appearance of church because you probably didn't do a lot of singing and fellowshipping and connecting together. But you can't separate yourself from this. And this is what's so beautiful. This is what makes it so powerful. And unlike any other organization in the world, it doesn't matter what they promise. They can't fulfill what Christ has already done for us on the cross. This is the power of us being the church together. And so what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and to the fellowship. Number three, it says they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now that's food. So we can stop there for a little while. It says this attribute of, of bread is unique. Now we know that Luke, again, Luke is very intentional with his language. And he talks about this breaking of bread. Ancient Jewish practice, they would often take a loaf, they wouldn't use utensils and knives. They'd take a loaf of bread, they'd break a loaf, and then they would distribute the bread. We know that at the Last Supper, the last meal that Jesus gathered together with his disciples, the apostles, but the Bible says that on that night, that meal, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he what did he do? He broke it. And when he broke it, then they passed it around, and they shared it together. So that we know there's a symbolic representation that's taking place in this language right here. That's why Luke wants to see us to see it. That when they broke bread together, 
It wasn't simply about gathering together for a meal. That's why Paul said, hey, be careful when you do this. Some of you are coming in and you're bringing all kinds of food and you've got like a whole buffet going on and other people are coming in and they've got like a two-piece chicken dinner and it's not really a fair experience. And so you actually, it's not a great way to represent Christ. He goes, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, come together so the unity exists and come together and break bread. And when you break bread, you'll be reminded of what he said. When you break this bread, we are being reminded that it was Jesus' body that was broken for us. We're going to do that in just a few moments. We're going to hold a wafer, and these wafers were part of a whole, and they've been broken down into individual little pieces, and you're going to hold on to that with the juice. And that's what the breaking of bread was. It was receiving of the bread. It was receiving of the juice, and it would become a reminder of what Christ did for us. Jesus gave his life for you so you could be the church. Jesus gave his best so that you could thrive in your life. And he did it not just so that we could be individualistic in our pursuit, but the collective community, the power of everyone together could make a difference in this world. And he said, when you come together and you break bread, remember as you break this bread and you look at these elements that it was my body that was sacrificed and given for you. And remember that it's me who gives you sustenance. He said, I am the bread of life. So they would hold this bread and they go, it's not in my job, it's not in my bank account, it's not what my future is, and it's not in my stock options. Not even whether or not somebody is going to provide for me. It's Christ is the essence of my support. And breaking of bread means I recognize that He gave His best, and the breaking of bread recognizes that I hold it in my hands, that Christ in Christ alone is my sustenance. All the, all the rest. He gives me life and breath and power and intellectual capacity. And yes, we can have great jobs. And yes, we can build our bank accounts. And yes, we can have all of this in life. But friends, never move away from the irreducible truth, which is the core attribute of what made the church thrive is a recognized. It's not in my wallet. It is in the breaking of the bread that Christ is the provision. And then there's a fourth one. And this last one was the issue of prayer. So they gave themselves to prayer. We know that they prayed all the time. There was temple prayer, a temple prayer, so daily they would go for prayer. And when they gathered together, they would pray. They prayed in homes. They prayed in the middle of a crisis. They prayed in the midst of the calm. All that they did, they gave themselves in prayer. There's a picture that we have hanging up in the church. I want you to look at this here. I love this picture. When I walk through the foyer of the church and I see this, I think it symbolizes the essence because Jesus said, where two or three gathered together, what? I'm with you. I'm right there with you. That's why we encourage people in our small groups, get together. Because when you get together, Christ is there. Make it Christ-centered, make it meaningful, make it powerful. They prayed in the middle of a crisis. They prayed when it was calm. They, they prayed believing for miracles. And what happens in Acts chapter 4? Peter and John on the way to the temple see a lame man. Hey, we don't have silver, we don't have gold. But here's what we do have in the name of Jesus. Where did that come from? That came out of prayer and trust in God. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And this man begins to walk and a miracle unfolds because they lived and moved and operated. That's why the Bible says, pray without ceasing. Ceasing, Live in the spirit of prayer. Prayer isn't merely the gathering together in a moment where we bow our heads and we wait for the collective leadership. Prayer is when we move into the spirit of prayer and this community leaves this place and we know that all of us together are praying without ceasing and we're believing, God, help us reach our city, help us reach our neighbors, help us reach our nation, help us reach our world. Use me, God, wherever I go. Use me in my, my workplace. Use me in my skill set. Use my personality. We pray into that, believing that God is going to do remarkable things. Their prayers were hopeful and their prayers were honest. 
In fact, what I love about their prayers is sometimes they didn't believe that God was going to answer them. You ever notice that? That gives me great assurance because there's sometimes I pray and I go, I don't know if this is going to happen. So there was a time, Acts chapter 12, some of you are looking like, okay, you're a heretic, get off stage. Acts chapter 12, Peter's in prison. They're all gathered back in the house. Oh God, release Peter. And an angel appears. And I love the story. We can't read it, can't spend time on it. But anyhow, an angel releases Peter from his chains, opens the prison doors, and even Peter goes, I don't know if this is really possible, what's happening right now. And the angel has to like motivate Peter to leave the prison. You can actually go now. So when he does, he goes to the prayer meeting because people were praying for Peter's release. And when he gets there, the servant girl goes, nah, that's no way, that can't be Peter. And she goes back, she goes, hey, Peter's at the door and they're all inside. It's like all of us praying for a miracle. They're all inside praying, go, oh God, send a miracle. And you know, the little servant girl is going, I think we got one. No, that can't be possible. Let's just keep praying. Because we're praying for a miracle and God can provide one, but not that way. It's going to be a way that we can understand. Prayer moves us into the realm of the impossible where only God leads. That's what prayer was. So this morning, we're going to thrive. We had an incredible year coming up. You have an incredible life to live. They committed themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. So before I go any further... Let's commit ourselves to these attributes. And I'm going to invite our communion service. Would you come right now down to the front? And we're going to distribute the elements. And I think one of the great ways for us to express this is the kind of church we want to be is to receive communion together. So as they distribute the elements throughout the room, I want you to take the bread and take the juice in your hand and be reminded as you hold them, I am part of what God is doing. I am the church. And as part of his church, I'm going to thrive because Christ gave his best and Christ is going to continue to be the sustainer of my life and the sustainer of the future of the church. And as we receive this, we're going to be led in worship, participate together, and then I'm going to come back and show you what happens when this is a regular occurrence in the life of the church. You may be seated. What an amazing way to wrap up the expression of our heart when a church thrives. And I want you to think about this. I want you to put yourself in Peter's context just for a moment because Peter was the one who would stand in in that moment in the power of the Spirit when people are going, you guys must be drunk. Like, what's going on in that room? All these voices and all this commotion. And remember, they're coming out of the emerging out of crisis. And so Peter steps into that. He has no idea what's going to happen, but he feels an inner prompting that this is the moment. This is what God's called me to, and I can speak to this right now. And you begin to see it build, and he starts with the prophets, and he moves towards Christ, and then he gets very bold, and he begins to call people to make a decision for Jesus. And remarkable, this is a man that had deserted Jesus a little over two months ago, just barely two months ago. And now he's standing and he's publicly calling people out saying, you need to make a profession of faith in Christ. Forget about imperial Rome. Forget about the shadow that Caesar is God. Forget about risking your life. You need to call this one out and you need to get baptized. You need to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. And so he probably said, every eye closed, every head bowed. And while you're praying, nobody looking around. I don't know what he did. 
But I have a feeling when he said, you need to trust Christ. And it probably blew him away when people went, I will. I will too. I will too. Hand after hand after hand. This is like from a small group of 120 people and suddenly all these people and we don't know over the roll of time if it was all at one time or when it began to roll up. What we do know is the scripture tells us Luke's very intentional that at least in that moment 3,000 people are being baptized. So what happens as a result of this? The evidence of a church that is truly thriving. If you've been taking notes, there was extraordinary unity. Extraordinary unity. They began to realize that this is not a movement that somebody else is leading. This isn't made by man. This is God doing something that is both mystical, spiritual, and dynamic, and it is powerful. And so the unity that began to spread in the body, Acts 2.44, it says all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They recognized one another. They probably began to cluster at the temple when they gathered for prayer. Hey, that's part of our movement, right? You're part of our tribe. We're the Jesus followers. And we know that they began to be distinguished from the rest of the people. And this power of unity gained a recognition within society. And the church began to emerge. It was thriving in the midst of what should have been a crisis. And any time a church is thriving, there is extraordinary unity. That's what I love about our church, is God is blessing us, and I never take that for granted And one of the reasons I believe God is blessing us is because of the unity that's being expressed in the church and the recognition, though we come from 90 different nations of the world and we come from different levels in society, we have different levels of income, that doesn't matter to any of us. It matters that you and I, we are created by God. And in that, we have worth and value. And so we honor each other for that. So this extraordinary unity is there. The second thing I identify is this radical generosity The evidence of a church that's thriving, people become radical when it comes to their generosity. Acts chapter 2, 45, it says they sold property and possessions and they would give to anyone who had need. They didn't wait for a special offering, a special appeal. They saw a need, they stepped in, they said, I can do something about that and I can meet that need. They were willing to expend their resources to express the faith that was living inside of them. And I asked the question at the very outset, what would it look like if the church were to unleash the power of everyone and and be on mission together? And that's why we wanted to have this day. Did you know in just five weeks we're going to launch our brand new campus? We're doing an adoption merger. If you're new here, we're adopting a group of people in that have tried together to continue to have an expression of faith up in the northwest corner of the city. And they approached us and we said, you know, we're getting ready to launch a campus. And through our conversation, we now have this agreement. So we're going to launch on April 1st, Easter Sunday, and we're going to show the city what it means when a church thrives, that churches can actually come together in unity and say, we can do something better together than trying to do it on our own. And we can do it for the name of Jesus, not for the name of Portico. And so we're going to do that together, and we're going to make a difference. But what would it look like if we together, as a church, unleashed this power? Well, I decided that maybe it was time for a little experiment. So on January the 7th, I said, let's do the power of everyone. I said, what would it look like if we practiced baseline generosity? You go, what's baseline generosity? Well, if we just gave a tithe, a representative tithe, I think that's the baseline of generosity, And we give a representative tithe of one week's income collectively together on the same day, what would that look like? 
So we know that over the course of time, people give, and some tip, and some tithe, and some are generous givers. It's, you know, we've got the spectrum. But I thought it would be a lot of fun if, as a church, I would like to know, and I think you would like to know, what, what do we have the potential to do as a church if we all came together and we became generous givers with radical generosity, and even if we just start at the baseline? So today, I said was the day that we would have our kids, our youth, and all of us participate in the offering. And I asked people simply to give the representative tithe off of one week's income. So everybody tracking? Okay, no. This was the day. Remember that. So people, they got a little confused about this. They go, so if I normally give more, do I just give the representative tithe? No, 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 no. Give more. But give the indication of what is the representative tithe. And if you normally give all at one time, then just break out what a weekly amount, a tithe of a weekly amount would look like so that we could add it all up. It's going to be anonymous. Nobody's going to know. We're going to add it all up. We're going to give the one figure to show all of our campuses collectively together in one offering what does radical generosity look like when we align. So are you ready? So radical generosity was part of the church. Now I'm going to go back. All right, ushers, let's do this. So we're going to receive an offering this morning. And it's been a lot of fun. People have been asking, okay, how do we do this? Kids have been asking their parents. So our children have already participated. Our youth are giving in the offering today. Ushers, make your way down to the front. We're going to receive the offering. What we're doing together, and people have asked, so what are we going to do with this? Like if we take up an offering, we're going to launch a campus, friends. We're going to reach and help more people find their way back to God. We're going to equip and resource the church to do what Christ set the church out to do which is to go make disciples of all people, help them to obey everything that I've taught, baptize them, and watch them get ignited and thrive as followers of Jesus Christ. So let's pray about it. Let's do this together. And then we're going to report later on uh, this month as to what we were able to do by giving together. Father, this morning, we want to thank you for the privilege of participating in the power of everyone. We recognize that we do so joyfully, gladly, and this is just an experiment we're doing together as a church. But the representative gifts of generosity can speak deeply into our commitment as what it is going to be to reach our cities, our province, our nation, this world, with the message of Jesus Christ. So we give, and we give freely, knowing that you get the glory out of this, not us. And we pray, Father, lead and guide us so that with great celebration, we will see thousands upon thousands profess the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior too. And we ask it in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you as you give. You want to keep singing? Okay, carry on. This is living. That's what it's all about, isn't it? This is living now. I'll tell you, to be the church... Not just to attend, to be the church is the greatest call and the greatest gift we've ever been given. Because Christ says, I've given you my spirit, I've given you each other. Now just turn the world upside down and have a great time while you're doing it. So as we leave this place today, here's what I pray. That we wouldn't walk out thinking, well, it was good to be in church today. But we'd leave today going, I leave today to be the church everywhere I go. And I spread the fragrance of Christ in everything I do. So, Father, that's our prayer. Thank you for blessing and being with us today. As people go, keep them safe on the roads. We pray may Jesus emanate through all that we do. May people be amazed and filled with awe. And may wonders and miracles be done because of Christ and Christ alone. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Have an amazing week.